0: grab that outline from the bulletin uh, to follow along this morning as we continue, as you've seen on the screen, our series that we've entitled Shattered, When Life Goes to Pieces, a study out of the book of 1st uh, Samuel. And over these last couple weeks, uh, we've explored some of the most difficult and heartbreaking uh, stories from that book. And we've used it as an opportunity to look at some of those difficult stories and, and broken lives to learn lessons uh, of what it means to um, To live life and to understand God's will when life doesn't go the way we expect it to. Maybe because of struggles or issues we have, maybe because of trials and tribulations, maybe because of sinful decisions we've made, we find our lives shattered, broken, all messed up and trying to figure out as Christians how we are to live vibrant and healthy lives in the process. We've learned what it means to suffer well. We've learned what it means to keep our eyes in the most difficult of times focused in on Jesus Christ and on His will, even when it seems like life couldn't get any worse. Along the way, we have, uh, up to this point, dealt with different aspects of being shattered the idea of shattered expectations, the idea then of uh, shattered parenting shattered religion. And last week we talked about the demise of a shattered nation, a nation that chooses to follow its own ways instead of the ways of God and the consequences that can come. You see, we come to a place in the Scripture where Israel uh, was tired of following God as their king. God, for many, many years, since the time of of Moses leading uh, the people out of Uh, Egypt, God had been their leader and they had followed him and he had blessed them and ministered to them and and led them well in the wilderness and then into the promised land. But during the time of the judges, where everybody did what was right in their own eyes, uh, they grew tired of following God and they wanted, just like every other pagan nation, a king. And we learned last week that they uh, turned their backs away from God and they desire a man, a man of all things, a man to lead them, to guide them, uh, to be their protector, to be the one who would go before them. And instead of following God in his ways, they sought fit to follow the same ideas and pathways that the pagan nations around them did in having a king. And what we learned last week is when we go outside the will and plan of God, things don't always go so well. When we put our trust in men instead of God, we see the consequences of such folly. And that brings us this morning to the life and times of that king, the one who had been given the job of leading the people of Israel. Now I want you to notice in First Samuel, if we were to be going at it a different way, we would see a lot of contrast that are going on. And I want to give you a contrast this morning that I think in some ways is a bit ironic, maybe even a bit humorous. At the end of the book of Judges, a very famous passage reminds us of the life and times of the nation of Israel. In the book of Judges, it says, and there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Very famous passage of Scripture. Today, we are going to learn that there is a king in Israel. That's a contrast. And I want you to notice the contract. The king of Israel did what was right in his own eyes. And so now Israel has a leader, the leader they're looking for. But what we're going to learn is that leader who should be leading the people uh, of God into a closer and vibrant walk with him to remind them that he too must be humble and obedient to the commands and calling of God, is going to do what he wants on his timetables, and he's going to follow his plans and vision. I want to show you this morning that when we pursue our own plans, our own desires, when we disobey instead of obedience, we shatter the directions God gives us and we deem ourselves unsuccessful. This morning I have the unenviable task of working through literally six chapters of Scripture. So we should be out sometime around five or six o'clock this evening. Okay, So just make room when the second service comes in. We'll catch them up and we'll just keep going. But we've got a lot of passage to deal with. And I want to do so under the the heading this morning of Shattered Directions, The Secret to My Success. And I want you to notice this morning that God has a word for us with regards to whether or not you and I will be successful in life. But before I get there, let's open our time with a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you. And we ask your blessing on your word this morning. Lord, there's much to glean from the passage before us, but we're going to focus our time, Lord, on, on one theme that you have laid forth in this text. And so, Lord, I pray that we would evaluate our lives this morning and ask the question, are we truly successful? And we'd be careful not to fall prey to the definitions and ideas of what success looks like but allow you to be the author of it. Allow you to be the one who guides us to it. Lord, there are many of us this morning who find more connection with the uh, life of King Saul because we choose to go our own ways. Lord, I pray today that that life would end and that we would humble ourselves before it's too late. Learn the lessons of this man in Israel's history. Bow the knee and return to you. So, Father, we ask your blessing. We ask your Spirit's guidance in all of it. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Success. I just love the sound of that word. Success is something we strive for, even as kids. It's something we long for in our academics. We pursue it in our athletics, and we desire for it in the arts. We want it in our sports teams, we want it in our workplaces. Who can, who can deny that when you are successful at work, promotions and, and opportunities for new ventures will come. We want success in our homes. We want our children to grow up and be successful children. We want our marriages to be successful. We want our communities to be successful. A successful community is a community that is, that is close-knit and, and one that is free of all of the encumbrances uh, of crime and, and other vices. We want to be. We also want to be successful in our church. Nobody uh, would ever say, and I'm pretty positive of this. Nobody would ever say that they don't want to be successful. I can't imagine uh, talking with any of you this today, and, and you would say, you know what? I just am really striving to be as unsuccessful as possible. That, that's my goal. That's that's my my focus. If I can get that, then I'm a, I'm a happy individual. What we think about when we talk about success is that it's a part of the human experience. It's, it's to that end that it, just hundreds of books are written as to how to become successful. We go to movies and we watch movies about, about lives and, and people and sports teams that inevitably have all kinds of things going against them, but, but against all hope and, and against all uh, the struggles in life, they find a way to be successful in reaching and attaining the goals that they have. And we're moved by that we're challenged by that as we read about stories of success and and we see over and over again that we are a people who recognize and affirm success through the giving of awards and recognitions so while success is a universal experience i want to remind you this morning that over the last generation or so success and its definition has changed In his book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Leaders, Stephen Covey said, there's a shift in how one attains success. He said, for the first 200 years of, of us as a nation, success was found in your character. He said, the forefathers of our nation were really good at instilling this in us as a nation. George Washington, our first president, would spend hours every day improving areas of character that had faults. We know the great men and women of our history books were usually men and women of great character. That we would define them as Honest Abe. We would talk about a conscientious Thomas Jefferson. But somewhere between the two world wars, something began to shift. No longer was success determined by character, but by your mindset. You didn't have to change who you were as a person. You just needed to change the outlook you had in life and if you could do that you would be successful so all sorts of posters all sorts of maxims if you will came out as a result let me give you some of them your attitude determines your altitude that's nice when life gives you lemons you make lemonade turn those scars into stars don't let your problems make you bitter let them make you better And what we notice is is the shift is subtle. Instead of success being forged in character and integrity that takes a lifetime to build, success is quick and and flippant. It's easy to attain. Well, I think our forefathers were closer to the basis of success that is founded in the Scriptures because the Bible says that, that to be successful is to be men and women of integrity to be men and women of obedience, to be men and women who recognize who they are in God's economy of things and recognize the hard work and the long toiling it will take to not only acquire good character, but to keep it. You see, right living in the Bible is the basis of true success. The Old Testament is full of stories that could be split down uh, into two columns. Those who were successful according to God's uh, mindset and those who were unsuccessful. And this morning, we come to one of the poster children of one of the most unsuccessful lives that all of the biblical authors ever talk about. King Saul is a man who seemingly had everything going for him. He had good qualities that that would would only emerge from its success. He was from a good family. He was tall. He was dark. He was handsome. He was influential. He had lots of giftings, a lot of victories in his way, and people were initially attracted by such success. But as time went on, as it does in our own lives, true character is what becomes important. See, after a while, people are going to start asking the question, What kind of human being is this as they look at you and me? And as we look at this very prominent figure from the scriptures, we see that Saul being the first king of God's chosen people is an utter failure when it comes to being a success. Now, I want you to notice this morning as we study this that it's not a failure of intellect. It's not a failure of competence. It's not a failure of not having enough uh, gifts to be able to accomplish the job. Saul had everything. But what we'll notice in chapters 13 through 15 is that Saul's life is going to unravel because he's unwilling to wait on God and make God the ruler of his life. And some of us this morning fall prey to the same thing. But in order to understand how to fix this, how to remedy this, We've got to ask the question, what is the secret to our success? Will it be built, listen, on the backs of our lives and accomplishments? Or it will be founded in our position as children of the great king, the God of the universe? To answer this this morning, I'm going to give you where we're going so you don't lose heart as we're processing through it. I want to look at four things this morning. The definition of success. The disguises of success the derailing of success, and the development of it. And we're going to move uh, as quickly as we can through it. So let's, let's explore, first of all, the definition of success. When one defines success, it is quick to look, we're quick to look at what we've done, what we have, who we are in the sense of compar- comparisons to other people. We'll look at our possessions and accomplishments and we will begin to try to figure out how can I define what success is in that orbit, in, in that line of thinking. I want you to turn your attentions here to a, for a moment as we're gonna show a video. And this video is gonna help us see the first definition and that is the world's definition. Write that down, the world's definition of success. Turn your attentions and watch the video for a moment. I define success as, oh my gosh, you have challenged me right there. <laughs> I define. Uh, ooh, okay. Huh. I guess. Uh, I don't know. Success means motivation, passion, determination. Going to Disneyland. Just kicking down fear and doing what I have to do to survive. I define success by the amount of likes I receive on Instagram. I guess how I would define it would be the smiles that I see on my wife and kids' face each and every day I come home. That lets me know uh, what I'm doing is worthwhile and to keep going. I would describe it in one word, sincerity. Achieve the goals that you set for yourself. I started my Instagram account back in 2012. At that time, I had just lost my job. And it was one of those rare moments when I felt like I had time to really think about what I wanted to do with my life. I fell in love with Instagram. Now I do that as my job. I want to go back to law school to help change laws and also to improve society and the world understanding of people in general, especially those who are deaf and hard of hearing. I have thought about Going back to school, even online, because I don't think I could sit in a classroom with um, youngsters. They'd probably call me grandma, (laughs) but I actually had a child at 22. I never really had time to go back to school, but he turned five, and I went back, and I got my high school diploma at 27. One of the goals I set for myself many years ago was to have a happy family, and I think I've been successful in that. My first love is, you know, besides my wife, is music. I feel like I just have a lot to say to the world. I wanna be the number one Instagrammer in the world. Waking up with the complete biggest smile on your face, knowing that you're gonna make it. I would tell people to um, follow their gut. It's never too late to do anything. Don't sweat the small stuff. To embrace others for who they are. I think we all deep down know what we wanna do in this world. And don't be afraid to be you. How do you define success? I don't want to beat up what, they've, what they have articulated and what they've said, but I want to nuance a little bit of what you've heard, because a lot of what was said, we most definitely would define in some way, shape, or form a level of success. Some of it's incredibly notable things, and yet we need to recognize a couple of things when we define success along those terms. First of all, I want you to recognize when we define success in many ways as they did, We must recognize that their success is bound up in what they're going to be or what they're going to do. And here's the problem when we define success that way. We have no control over it. Does that make sense? So if you set a goal, so the the man says, I want to have a happy family, okay? That sounds like a great and laudable thing. Here's the problem. He cannot make his family happy they, he has no control over that. He can do things that, that can make his family uh, experience some levels of joy and some levels of happiness. But, but you've got to recognize this morning, if your success is defined by making someone else happy, you've got zero control over that. Listen, if I was to define my, my pastorate by making you guys happy, I'm going to fail a lot more than I'm going to succeed, Right? because you're a fickle people, and I don't know exactly what's going to make that happen. And so I need to recognize I've got zero control over the happiness of others. Number two, we need to recognize that usually when we define success that way, it almost always comes with a comparison of someone else. And so when we define success, when we say, I want my family to be happy, we will usually go and find a family that's unhappy, right? A husband or wife that maybe isn't as happy and we say, well, how do I know if my family's happy? How do I know if I've accomplished this successful thing in my life? The answer is I got to go look for someone else who isn't able to say those things are true. And so it always will involve comparison. But the final thing is it's bound up, listen, in how we define it. If we are the ones who define what success is, If we are the ones who say, this is what success looks like, it would be no different than us being a student who's taking a class and there's an exam in the class and the teacher, instead of giving an unbiased test, setting a standard by which everyone must achieve, you are given the test which is blank and you can determine what questions you want on the test. Let me tell you something you will always, unless you're really dumb, you will always be able to answer the questions that you put on the test. Does that make sense? And so when we say success, this is what, how I define success. You are defining the terms by which you will be deemed successful or not. Here's the problem. Success must by nature be defined by an unbiased arbiter. That's what makes graduation so amazing. When a student graduates, it isn't that they've set the terms, but they've achieved a level of terms by someone else. Someone has set the level and said, if you achieve such things, there is a level of success because you've achieved something that you yourself haven't determined. So when we pass the test that is given by someone else, we will know we've truly accomplished something of greatness. That's why we need, listen, not the world's definition of success, but the words. We need the scriptures to speak to it. And the Bible speaks over and over again as to what success is, how it's found, where it's derailed in people's lives. And to help us this morning, I want to define what I believe, and, and we spent a lot of time as the preaching team really thinking through what, what a good definition of success is. And, and we, were, we had definitions that were a mile long because we wanted to make sure we hit everything. We came down and brought it down to uh, the bare minimum, not because it's the bare minimum of success, but really... At the end of the day, how is success defined in all of who we are, no matter our backgrounds, no matter our struggles, no matter our, uh, the, the things in life that we're going through? And this is what we wrote down, biblical success. Biblical success is the ongoing pursuit. It's the ongoing pursuit of all that God wants you to be and do. It is the ongoing pursuit of all that God wants you to be and do. And we're going to address this in a couple moments, but, but just define a couple parts of this definition. Number one, it's ongoing. You cannot just live in light of your past successes. You can't say, I'm a successful person. Well, why are you successful? Well, 20 years ago, I did this or I did that. It's ongoing. It's a pursuit meaning it's something that that we can attain but we never really fully grasp. And we see that in the life of sanctification, our life of becoming more like Christ as we strain, as we stretch for something that is before us, that God wants for us. It isn't that he never gives it to us, but once we grab a hold of one level of that sanctification, God then causes us to stretch and grow to the next one. Notice this ongoing pursuit is of all that God wants, not part of what God wants, not some of what God wants, but all of what God wants us to be and then to do. So being successful is being a person who recognizes and realizes that I'm a child of the one true king. I've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. That it's not based on anything I can do, but the mercy of God, that God has lavished his love upon me. And I need to revel in that. I need to rest in that. And that's success. But listen, we can't just sit and revel in the idea that, that I've been saved Because God says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ to do good works that he's prepared for us in advance to do. So we can't sit back and say, I'm successful because of all that Christ has done. Yes, that's a realization, but we must change that realization and move it to action. So let me ask you this question this morning. Based on this definition, are you successful? Are you engaged in an ongoing pursuit of all that God wants you to be and do? Notice what I haven't talked about this morning. I haven't talked about your bank account. I haven't talked about the car you drive. I haven't asked you how nice your house is in comparison to your neighbors or what the nameplate says on your desk. I haven't asked you if your kids made the honor roll this quarter. I didn't ask you if they're the starters on the athletic squad. I didn't ask you if your wife thinks you're the greatest thing in the world. I'm asking you the question, what does God say? about your success. Now let's remember something very important. When we stand on the day of judgment, it won't be our neighbor, it won't be our banker, it won't be our boss, it won't be our parents or our kids. It won't be the watching world, but it will be God who will define whether you were successful or not. And God's either gonna say one of two things, depart from me, I never knew you, or well done, good and faithful servant. I would hope that we would want the latter. And if that's the case, we must pursue the things that God defines as success. Instead of choosing God's God's way, what we many times will do is we'll disguise it. And this is where we bring in King Saul. Because instead of pursuing God's way and God's definition of success, because had he done that, We would have seen that he would have ruled over the nation of Israel for a long period of time. He would have had great blessing, but he chooses his own way. But all the while, he does something that we do, and that is he disguises his success to try to make it look better than it really is. Notice the disguises. We've got four of them we want to look at today. You see, Saul chose the easy way instead of the hard way. He chose the shortcut instead of the real way. And he was able to trick others into believing that he truly had success, that he was successful. And likewise, we seek the same thing. Instead of pursuing God on his terms, we go our own way. And we fake it all the while. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 9 for a moment. 1 Samuel 9. We're introduced to the king of Israel, the first king. He's been anointed by Samuel. Remember, this isn't Samuel's choice. This is the people's choice. This is the people's king. God says that their choice of Saul is a rejection of God himself. And in 1 Samuel 9, we are introduced to this man, and we learn something about him. Notice in in verse 1, we learn that he is of the Benjamite tribe. Uh, He is uh, a a son of a a man from the family of Kish. And, And we learn at the end of verse 1 in chapter 9, that he's a part of a family of great wealth. He's a part of a family of great wealth. I want you to notice a couple things that when we try to look successful, we will disguise it through a number of disguises. We're coming to the week of Halloween, of course, where where what we will do is we'll have children dressing up. They will disguise themselves as something else. And, And for many of us, we wear disguises every day of the week. We do so because we don't want people to see the real us, we want people to see the person that we want them to see, and Saul did this in many ways, and the, and the people of Israel were ripe for it. And, and what I want you to notice is there's a couple tests that take place. Notice the first disguise uh, we must ask if we're wearing it is to take the possession test, the possession test. For Samuel 9, the first thing we learn is he comes from a family of great wealth, Some believe that Saul's family was one of the richest families in all of the nation of Israel. And with those riches in Saul's family would come the finest of affair. It's no wonder he would be the people's choice for their king. Because he was already living in the lap of, of high life of luxury. It's amazing that the things you can have can tell people if you're truly successful or not. We do this all the time. Sometimes we don't even recognize it. We see somebody driving in a nice car and we assume that they are a successful business person. They're good with money. They're rich. We do it as we, as we look at people's homes, the possessions they have. These are all disguises of success. Nowhere in all of Scripture, listen, does possessions or money ever equal success in God's eyes. Yet it does here in America. The problem is is that we can disguise it all the more now than ever before because of the use of available credit. You see, we can tell the world we have more riches, that we are more successful, and listen, we do it through a lie by using other people's money. This was the great demise that took place some seven or eight years ago in the housing crisis. We bought homes we could not afford long-term Because we had this idea, if we had a home, people might think that we're doing better than we really are. So we would leverage all that we had on that house, and little would we know that the bank would at some point come and ask for the money in return. You see, we bought into the idea that a bigger house gives a greater picture of success. The devil tells us that people will look at us differently when we have these things. It changes how we look. To illustrate this disguise, Uh, some years ago I was catering in a very fancy upscale neighborhood for a first birthday party. And as I was setting up, I noticed that in this beautiful, pristine, massive, massive home, there was very little furniture. Folding chairs, folding tables. Uh, It just didn't seem right. And I assumed upon the idea that what was going on was that the house they had just moved in To which I said, How long have you been in the neighborhood? And they said, Three and a half years. And I was kind of surprised by that. And then a truck came in, a moving truck. And I was like, okay, maybe they've been getting new furniture and they're waiting on new furniture and all of that. And the moving trucks came in and they brought everything from sofas and couches to dining room tables to all of the things that would go on all of this stuff. Every room now had beautiful, pristine furniture in it. And I said to one of the moving men as I was doing some grilling out in the driveway, I said, man, you guys delivered just in time. They must have been really getting nervous. He says, no, that's how we operate. I says, you wait to the last second to deliver? He says, no, we're a rental company. We rent furniture by the hour. And he says, what we usually do is we do it for model homes. Someone's going to have a a model open house, and they'll fill the house with paintings and all of that. And I said, but this isn't a model open house. He says, this is our new market. He says, all these people are buying houses they can't fill, and they're going to have a party, and they know that nobody wants to see an empty house. It will show a level of unsuccessfulness in their lives. We come in, he says, they'll have the furniture for five hours. We'll be back at nine, and they'll take it out. And you see, what that couple was doing was that couple was living a lie. They wanted to prove, prove their success to their family and friends, and little did they know it was just a mirage. There was no financial success there. I got to imagine that they weren't there very long. We disguise success. Notice the second thing that Saul has going for him, that's a disguise. It's what I want to call the portrait test. Notice he's a man of great wealth, verse one. but it says that he has a, uh, he's, his name is Saul. And the first thing that is said and I know you run this risk when you talk of your pastor the first thing that's said of the guy. There should have been an amen there. He's a handsome man, okay? He's handsome. It, It goes on and it says, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. It's hard to have that distinction. I know, it's difficult, okay? But what we see in Saul is something that God has graced this man with absolutely beautiful looks. He is something to take in. And isn't it odd that that would be the one thing that right away we would determine would be something that hair's our guide. Look at him, he's so good looking. Let me tell you something, our media, listen, is driven by the portrait test. Put before you on the TV a beautiful person and you'll listen a lot more closely. As if they've achieved something. Listen, the only thing they've achieved is they were born, right? I get these good looks from God's grace and Bill and Michelle, but all I couldn't do anything and be this good looking. It's not because of me. It's the great genes I got, okay? But yet we laugh, and that's what we do. We want to get our news from good looking people. We want our people in the movies to be good looking. All of our entertainment should be good-looking. Listen, I've got a face for radio, okay? Have you ever noticed the ugliest people in media are the radio personalities? And yet I might add some of the most interesting people I know are the ones on radio because they're not, we're not driven by that portrait test. I want to remind you that Jesus failed the portrait test. In Isaiah 53, 2, this is what it says of the king of kings and lord of lords. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Jesus could have put himself in the most beautiful of human flesh. But he said the portrait test isn't it. Now, listen, if you're a beautiful person, Okay, number one, don't tell people that. But if you're a beautiful person, thank God for that. Okay? Be thankful for it. It's a wonderful thing. And here's the thing, if you believe God is your creator and God does all things well, then what do we define as beauty? All things he's created. But the thing we need to be careful is is that we don't determine someone's success by that. Some years ago, the story was told of a pastor who had just received the, the call to be a new pastor of a, of a very large church, around 10,000 people. And the first Sunday he was to be there, everybody wanted to meet the new pastor. They wanted to shake his hand, they wanted to get to know him, and they couldn't find him. And on that Sunday, a homeless man walked into the church. He didn't look all that appealing, he didn't look all that, that good, and, and the homeless person uh, was told to sit in the back, the homeless person wasn't talked to. Nobody interacted with the homeless person. They left them to be, and, and that's what we do. When someone doesn't look all that put together, we, we put them towards the fringes. That all changed when the chairman of the elder team got up and said, we'd like to introduce our new pastor. He shared the name, and the only person that stood up and walked towards the pulpit was the homeless individual. It was the new pastor. And the church learned that, that we need to make sure that we are careful to not determine by a portrait, by someone's good looks, whether they're successful or not. Notice there's a personality test. Turn in your Bibles a page to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 24. 1 Samuel chapter ch- chapter 10, verse 24. The personality test is that, that hidden charisma. Whatever it is, he, he's got it, she's got it. And Saul had it. In verse 24 of chapter 10, notice what, what takes place. King, is, uh, King Saul is anointed and presented before the people. And, and notice, Samuel even gets in on this. And he says in verse 24, And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. This guy is a cut above everyone else. It's not just his looks. It's his charisma. It's his personality. He exuded success. He was what men wa- or he was the kind of man a woman wanted and, and men wanted to be like. The best way to define it would be the commercials that I see uh, of the Dos Equis man. I know it's a beer commercial. He's the most interesting man in the world. He has experiences, he, he, he is far superior in, in every way. From romance to strength to his vast intellect. And, and, and I did some studying of the Dos Equis commercial and the marketing behind it. This is what they said of, of that man. We wanted to present to our customers a man who is so rich in story and experience that it would only lead them to dream and hope for what may be in their future. Drink the beer and you'll become interesting. You see, we desire... We long to be the hit at the party. To be the most interesting people that when we talk, people hush in silent expectation as to what we are going to say. And what we are told is that Saul had it. That charisma, that, that, that thing that so many of us long to have, to, to prove to the world that we've made it, we're something special. He had the personality. Notice the position test. In verse 24, stayed right there in chapter 10, we are told not only does he have it from a personality standpoint, but in verse 24 we are told that uh, there's none like him among all the people, and the people shouted, long live the king. He was good looking, he came from a family of wealth, he had possessions, he had a personality, and now he holds the position. He has the corner office. His nameplate says C- E-O. He's the guy. He's at the top of the org chart. He's the king. But let me be very clear this morning. Never think that your nameplate on your desk defines your success. David was a lowly shepherd boy, and yet he was a man after God's own heart. The disciples were unlearned fishermen, yet they changed the world because of Christ. We love titles. And we think titles will determine. Listen, there's a man or a woman out there this morning that is striving and longing for a promotion. And it's not because of the more money they might get. It's not because it's gonna give new opportunities. It's not because of new challenges. The only reason you long for that promotion is because you think that that new title will give you a recognition you don't have today. Position. Saul had it. He was the king. How about the prize test? 1 Samuel 11 says that the first thing that Saul does as a king is he destroys a neighboring nation that were enemies of God, the the Ammonites. He defeats them. He has victories. There were victories in his past, and here's the problem. Saul would continually go back to what he had done as a king. He would go back to his, his victories And some of us this morning would say, yeah, I'm successful. And you would even determine, listen, according to the biblical definition, I am successful according to God's terms. But what you are using as evidence of your success is stuff that happened 20 years ago. I'm a successful Christian. Because of what I did 20 years ago in the small group ministry, what I did 20 years ago in the children's ministry, what I did 20 years ago in sharing my faith, well, what have you been doing so uh, since then? Not very much, but, but hey, I still have it in the past. Let me tell you, the idiocy of such thinking, okay? And we have it here, by the way, in the Chicagoland area with our sports teams. We don't talk about the present. We always are talking about the past, you, know, you recognize that? And I don't mean to, this isn't Cubs, White Sox. I can't tell you how many times I, I, I grow weary of it as a Bears fan. We keep going back to 1985, okay, as if it, we were successful as an organization. We're losing games left and right, and what do we do? We go back to the glory days. And as Christians, we go back to how we used to be than where we should be. And that's why in our definition we called it an ongoing pursuit. Listen, I can only define success as a father based on what I've done today. I can't tell my kids, well, I was successful when you were infants. I was really good. Hey, honey, I'm a great husband because of what what I did in our first couple years of marriage. No, I'm a success based on not only what has been done in the past, but what has been an ongoing practice to to today and tomorrow. And some of us are holding. We're holding this idea that we're successful because of what we did yesterday. It's an ongoing pursuit. Every time Saul would have someone come and confront him, he would almost always go back to, but I did something in the past. It doesn't matter what you did in the past unless it's been followed up with faithfulness since then. We must understand we cannot define success on our own terms. And if we do, it isn't success at all. Saul missed opportunities, and instead of pursuing God, he, he, he allowed these disguises, these terrible disguises of what seemingly looked like success, which really weren't. You see, instead of pursuing obedience, he pursued things, write this down, the things that derailed his success. On four separate occasions, we see Paul choosing to disobey. Instead of obeying God's pathway to success, he follows his own ways. I want you to notice each of these, and we we don't have a lot of time, so we'll go through these quickly this morning. The first way that Saul derailed his success, and we do, I'm going to have a little fun with my alliteration. It begins with impatience with God, impatience with God." In Saul, First uh, Saul, Samuel 13 — so turn there now as we continue to move in this biography of Saul's life. In First Samuel 13, in verses 1 through 14, we are told of an issue that's going on. First Samuel 13, it opens up, and the Philistines are causing trouble. They're amassing a great amount of troops along the border, and they're ready to destroy the nation of Israel, 30,000 of them. That's a lot of troops. And, 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 and Saul doesn't have a lot of troops on his side, but he knows that, that Israel has never had to determine their strength based on the amount of men or chariots that they have, but on the faithfulness of God to rescue his people. And Samuel says, I don't want you to go into battle, king. I don't want you to go into battle until we get God's blessing on this battle. Let's wait on the Lord. And so I want you to wait in your city for seven days. Seven days you're going to wait. I'm going to come and we're going to sacrifice to the Lord. We're going to get his blessing so that we will be ready to take on the enemy with God's blessing and not just our own. In, in verses 1 through 14, we learn in the story that Samuel, so, for some reason, is delayed. He's delayed. Maybe traffic was bad. We, we don't know why he's delayed, okay? And, and he shows up a little late. We're not told if it's days after. It seemingly seems to point to the idea that he shows up on day 7 just a little later in the day. And what do we find out? Saul does the unthinkable. Instead of waiting on Samuel and the commands of the Lord, he plays the part of a priest. The king's job was never to lead the people in, in the spiritual act of worship. He wasn't the priest. He wasn't ordained to do such sacrifices. He was called to wait. God had said, King, you don't have to listen to anybody else but me. Here's your command. Wait seven days. Wait for my servant Samuel, and then you will get my blessing. And instead of waiting, instead of listening to the clear command of God, for whatever reason, he chooses to go out without God. And he makes a sacrifice of his own. He says, you know what, I can't wait. I see things more clearly than God. God obviously doesn't understand my circumstances. And and I will tell you, as an individual, listen, the most difficult and the worst decisions of my life have always been ones that have been made out of haste. Isn't that true for you? The decisions that we make in in haste are usually the ones that come back to bite us. You see, one of the things that we do is we think we know better than God. We feel that we can't live without something. And that we have to have it right now. And, And so we go and we take it and we do what we will with it. Instead of waiting on the Lord. Instead of waiting on His time frame and in His right place. Let us remember the words of Isaiah forty thirty one, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. We need to recognize this morning that we are called over and over again, just as Saul was, to wait on the Lord. And maybe right now you're, you're, you're needing something And God isn't coming through. Well, maybe there's a reason why God isn't coming through. Maybe God has a plan that's bigger than your plan, and and you say, but I hate being in the waiting room. I'm with you. I don't like it either. There's nothing fun about it. But God has told you to wait for a reason. Saul didn't get it, and he would lose his kingship as a result. What consequence are you willing to endure because you're unwilling to wait? Notice the second thing that derails his success. It's what I'd like to call partial obedience. In 1 Samuel 15, so turn the page as we continue to move in this story, Saul once again finds himself being given a command of the Lord. And this command this time is a command to go against the uh, Amalek people. And the reason to go against the Amalek people is their harsh treatment, 1 Samuel 15 says, of the Israelites in the past, they have dealt treacherously against the nation of Israel. And God sees fit that he says, I'm done with these Amalekites, and we're going to destroy them. And he gives Saul and the people of Israel a brutal task and assignment. The task is simple in verse uh, in chapter 15. Go to Amalek and destroy everything and everyone there. Now, I don't have time to address the theological implications, but what may seem harsh to us, listen was reasonable and right before a righteous God. I don't get why he would allow that. I don't get why he would would allow the death of women and children and all the livestock and all of that. But here's what I know. God does all things well, and that's good enough for me. So he's given this job. And in verse 8 through 10, he enters the city. He's given the task of leaving nothing there. Destroy it all. And in verses 8 through 10, what does he do? He goes in, and yes, he destroys the uh, Amalekites, but he does so partially. What does he not do? He keeps King Agag for himself. The king of all people that you would not kill, he keeps the king alive, brings him back to his his, uh, base. And it says in the text, notice in in, uh, verse 10, that they kept, it's in uh, verse 9, I'm sorry, he kept all of the best of the sheep and the oxen of the fattened calves and, and the lambs and all that was good. He would not utterly destroy them. So he was given the right command, but he says, instead of doing what I'm supposed to, I'll obey it partially. And so that's what he does. He obeys the partial command. Listen, we live in a culture, we live in a society that tells us as Christians when we can and where we can choose the commands of God to follow. We take uh, part of Jesus' words, but not all of them. And listen, that doesn't jive with Jesus. He wants full obedience. We need to recognize this morning, listen, something that I've continually taught my boys. Partial obedience is full disobedience. Let me, let me say that again, partial obedience is full disobedience. You may say, but, but Tim, I'm doing a really good job over here, so let me have this pet sin over here. Hey, I'm doing what God wants on this edge of the ledger, but, but boy, I can't say no to these things. These, these things are too important for me. That's what Saul was doing. Saul said, yeah, I'll do the easy stuff, Lord, but when it comes to the things I may want, the things I may desire, I'm going to keep them for myself. God was greatly grieved by Saul's disobedience, and he's greatly grieved by our partial obedience, which is full disobedience before him. And as if that wasn't enough, as if that wouldn't have taken the cake, uh, Saul, our buddy here, does something even worse. Notice in chapter 15, verse 12, one third thing, a third thing that derails our success, pride. This guy is a piece of work, Okay? In verse 12, and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told of, to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. That's weird. He went and he built a monument for himself. What in the world is he thinking? That just seems odd. How full of himself could he really be? He, he, he wants to let everybody know, everybody to recognize his accomplishments. Listen, if you're the one who recognizes yourself or your accomplishments, you've not accomplished much. I once catered an event for a man who threw a party in honor of himself. It was very odd. Okay? He asked himself, listen to me, it's weird, we cater for weird people. He, he introduced himself in the third person and then got up and announced the award that he had won at work. It, it was odd. Let me tell you something. You say, man, that just seems weird. It's odd when I saw it in that catering job, but it isn't odd when I allow my ego to edge out God. It isn't odd when I read my own press clippings. It isn't odd when I, when I tell people ad nauseum, look at all the great things I've done. Have you noticed that? Have you, have you, I know you've been busy, so I'm just going to catch you up with all the great things Tim Bidal has done. Again, third person, Tim Bidal. Saul's building monuments for himself. And listen, it is unbecoming for us as Christians to build monuments of anybody but God himself. God's it. He's everything we have. He's our reason for any success that we have. So whatever success you've been given, whatever wealth you've been given, whatever you want to to think is yours, it's not God by his grace and his love and his mercy has showered it upon us. And to think that we could make any uh, bones about it that we've done anything is to miss the mark. So Samuel comes and he confronts Saul like a good prophet would. And he, he confronts Saul with his evil deeds and disobedience. And in, in chapter 15, and you can spend some time as, as small groups, no doubt you, you work through this. And so if you haven't, read through it. Uh, Saul hears from um, Samuel in verse t- uh, 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king. L- let me tell you something. The last thing you want to hear as a Christian is God's regret over your life. And if that doesn't sober you up this morning, you say, well, God will never say that of me. He says it of Saul. What says he won't say it of you? And so Samuel goes and he shares the message (laughs) uh, uh, verbatim what he's heard from the Lord. God has rejected you as king, Saul. You've gone too far. You've gone just not one step, two steps, three steps. Man, four times you've, you've seemingly gone your own way in disobedience. And what does Saul do? Saul does what we all do. He repents. But I want you to notice his repentance is not a real one. It's a phony one. It's a phony repentance. Saul gives a song and dance. Why did people bring stuff back? Why did the people bring stuff back from the Amalekites? Saul, the king, says, I didn't do it. The people did it. What kind of king are you, Saul, that the people do what they want against your own good wishes? It's a lie. Saul is trying to blame the very people he leads. He's trying to pass the buck. And yet here's the thing. All that God had commanded, Samuel brings down the hammer. He says, enough's enough. Your kingdom is over. God has chosen another to take your place. And what does Saul do? At that moment, he confesses. In the Badal home, I don't know if it's true in your home, but repentance, listen, repentance always comes after the consequences have been laid out, right? So I'll say, You've done wrong. This thing you've done is wrong. It's evil. You need to repent of it and all that. Uh huh, uh huh. And you're going to lose your tablet for a week. Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll go and say sorry to mom. I'll do whatever you want. That's phony repentance. When the consequence comes, when you repent, that's the problem that we need to understand. Listen, write this down, because this is very important. Phony repentance is repentance that is only concerned, it's only concerned about the consequences of being caught. Phony repentance is repentance that is only concerned about the consequences of being caught. There's a lot of phony repenting going on. I got caught. That's one bad thing. But now you're saying that something's going to happen? The only reason Saul repents is because his kingdom has been taken away from him. And like a little kid, he starts crying before the prophet Samuel and says, but no, but wait, give me another chance. I promise I'll do better. The chances had come, and they had gone. And he would shed tears. Four areas that derailed Saul's life. And his success. And the question this morning is Are they derailing yours? Are you impatient with God? Are you obeying him partially? Is your life filled with pride? And are you involved in phony repentance? God wants you to be successful, God wants you to pursue him. But how do we do it? Give me one minute, minute and a half tops, and we'll, we'll be out of here. Proverbs chapter 3, turn there for a moment. Proverbs chapter 3, how do we become successful? The book of Proverbs tells us, another king, by the way, another king lights the way for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Proverbs chapter 3, I want you to notice verse 4 very quickly. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 4 says the following, I'll let you get there. Verse 4, so you will find favor, and the ESV says, good, help me out. Success. Ta-da! There it is. And not only does does God's word say you'll find success, but notice what he says. You'll find success in heaven with God and on earth with man. That's the kind of success you want. And how do you get there? I, I want you to write this down. We have to develop good Success. How do we develop good success? Turn the, turn the slide there for me. How do we develop that successful living? Number one, verses one through three tell us we must cling to the commands of God. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success. Are you clinging to the word of God this morning? Saul wasn't. And it led him to his demise. The second thing we see on the one side, that's how you get success. And on the flip side, on the other side of verses 5 and 6, it involves not only clinging to his commands, but putting your Savior before self. Let me read. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. When you put Jesus Christ before yourself, when his will and plan comes before yours does, when we can echo the words of Jesus who said, not my will, but your will be done, we will find success in the eyes of God and in the eyes of men, are you clinging to his commands? Are you putting your Savior before yourself? If you are, you'll find success. So that ends. It brings us to this ending point. Are you successful this morning? Have you taken stock of your life and asked the question, am I truly successful? Remember, it's God who will determine it in the end. So you better start defining it on his terms and doing it his way and not doing it the way Saul did, following his own will and desire.